Almost every piece of digital media that you consume is protected from copying by something called DRM. Today we're going to talk about digital rights management, how it affects the things that you buy, and why it was implemented. Welcome to Copec Explained Software, the podcast where we make computing intelligible. This week, we're talking digital rights management. Let's start at the beginning. What does DRM mean? It's funny because it's called digital rights management, or DRM for short, but really it's about restricting what you can do with certain kinds of media. So you purchase a movie, and you want to watch that movie. You're allowed to watch it on the computer that you purchased it on using the account that you're logged into that you purchased it from. But then you want to let another friend view it, and you want to send it over to that friend. Maybe you want to upload it onto Google Drive and let them download it, or maybe you want to put it onto a USB key and give it to them. They're not able to view the movie without your credentials. This is a type of DRM. DRM is a way of stopping you from using media in ways that the original creator didn't intend for it to be used. It's a way of restricting you, stopping you from making copies, stopping you from letting others access the media. So Richard Stallman calls digital rights management digital restrictions management for this reason. But why does it exist to begin with? Because of piracy. And copyright is actually something that goes all the way back to the U.S. Constitution and is then actually um, implemented by many laws throughout the years. That doesn't mean it's either a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing that exists. And we could talk about whether it's good or bad, but that would really be beyond the scope of our discussion. We're more interested in how it led to DRM. So copyright holders do have the ability, going back before DRM, to protect their works. For example, I can't go buy a book at a bookstore, photocopy it, and then start selling those photocopies. That would be breaking the copyright holder's rights. That would allow them to sue me and to get damages. So what happens when that book is digital? Is it okay for me to get a digital copy of the book? copy it onto a disc, and then give it that disc to somebody else. No, that's still breaking copyright rules. Unless I have explicit permission to do that, I'm not allowed to go and make those copies. The problem is that a lot of people do copy those things in violation of these laws and to the quote-unquote rights of the copyright holders. This is what's known as piracy. And so DRM is an attempt by media companies, software companies, to stop digital piracy. And it became so important because piracy in the digital age is so much easier than piracy was in the pre-digital age. Back when I had to buy that book and photocopy it, it actually was a lot of work and the end product was gonna be much lower quality than the original published book. The photocopied book, it's gonna be first of all obvious that it's counterfeit. Number two, it's going to be lower quality paper, lower quality bindings. Maybe I made some mistakes when I did the copy. It's not a perfect copy. In the digital world, you can make a perfect copy instantly for almost no cost. So when I have that original book, it takes two seconds to duplicate the file on my computer. So because it's so easy to copy things in the digital world, new ways of protecting media for copyright holders were invented And also, we'll get to this, but new laws were invented as well. Is DRM a piece of software that's built into the media, or can it be hardware? 
It actually comes in both forms, but the prevalent kind today is software. If we go back to the early days of digital media, and we talked about some of this on a previous episode about video game distribution that I'll put in the show notes. But for example, the first Nintendo console had a built-in what's called lockout chip, which made sure that only legitimate Nintendo cartridges would run in the NES. This did not allow people to go and then make copies of the cartridges and distribute them because they wouldn't have the lockout chip that was required on those cartridges to make them work with the official console. So this was a form of digital rights management that used hardware. There were also, in the 90s, some software for your personal computer that would come with a dongle, a little thing that you would attach to the back of your computer, a physical device that would make sure that the software was legitimate. You had to own both the software and the dongle for the software to run. So if you went and copied the software and put on a disk and gave that disk to somebody else, because they wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to copy the dongle because it's a physical thing, they wouldn't be able to run the software. So yeah, there's definitely hardware kinds of DRM, but the vast majority of DRM today is through software. It uses some kind of encryption, and we talked about encryption on a previous episode, so I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. But basically, for the software to actually be accessible, you need to be able to decrypt it or the media. Um, and to do that, you need to have access to a specific key. And usually those keys are protected by accounts. So for example, you might have to have access to the account that you purchased that movie on in order to watch the movie. And that way, when somebody else gets the movie, it's scrambled, it's backed by encryption. It can't actually be descrambled without the key that comes from your user account. So encryption is used as a tool combined with some software routines to stop people from illicitly using the software or the media. So with this digital media transition now that we're all in, uh, you mentioned that there were some laws that were passed to help manage it. Yeah, so like I mentioned before, it was already illegal to duplicate copyrighted works without permission. So it already meant that if I purchased a video game and I went and made copies of the floppy disks and then distributed them, that was illegal. But laws were implemented in the late 1990s. The one in the United States is called the DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, that extended copyright specifically to certain kinds of digital forms and was very explicit about how it extended it. And then also went beyond that to actually make it illegal to break the DRM that protects the media. So for example, DVDs, actually a lot of them have a primitive kind of DRM called CSS. And this is different from CSS on the web. It's a different kind of CSS. Um, and this system, CSS, was made it so that DVDs could be locked to a particular region, and it also meant that DVDs could only be played on licensed players. So any manufacturer that wanted to make a DVD player had to get a license to be able to descramble DVDs and get by the CSS system. This system was quickly broken by hackers. But the DMCA made that illegal. It made it, even though if you weren't distributing the movie, so let's say that I wasn't actually distributing um, a DVD of Titanic. I was just distributing software that enabled you to play Titanic on a machine that wasn't licensed to play DVDs, or even allowed me to maybe take Titanic off of a DVD, turn it into a, a regular file on my computer that could be played and then distribute it over the internet even if I wasn't actually doing any copyright infringement because I wasn't distributing Titanic, 
just distributing a system that enabled you to break CSS and therefore copy movies like Titanic was illegal based on the DMCA. So the DMCA actually made certain kinds of reverse engineering illegal, even if you weren't committing copyright infringement, but you were just enabling other people to use these tools that would enable them to do copyright infringement. Now, I should say the DMCA has a lot of other provisions, but for this provision alone, it's a very controversial law. Not everyone agrees with it. One of the other provisions in it that's actually been very important to the growth of the internet is that it enables content hosters, sites like YouTube, to actually be protected from copyright violation claims as long as they quickly remove content that copyright holders submit to them. So for example, if I upload the movie Titanic to YouTube, YouTube is not immediately financially responsible for me making that mistake. But if the copyright holder, I don't know what movie company came out with Titanic, but if they go to YouTube and they say, hey, that copy of Titanic, we didn't authorize that. It's not supposed to be on your platform. By the DMCA, they have to immediately remove it, but they're not responsible for the action of their user who originally uploaded it according to the DMCA. So if we didn't have this provision in the DMCA, it would be very hard for sites like YouTube to exist because they would have to have some way of having a human go and review every single piece of content that gets uploaded to their site. And that would be almost impossible. You can even just think about a site like uh, Facebook. Imagine like every copyrighted thing that's ever been uploaded to Facebook, every copyrighted photo, every copyrighted file, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if Facebook had to go and human curate every single thing and make sure it wasn't violating anything, it would be impossible. So the DMCA actually makes it possible for sites that are hosts to be able to host all kinds of different content without having to check every file before it gets posted. So the DMCA has a lot of different provisions, but it's a very, very controversial law. I will admit, just in full disclosure, that I have used the DMCA provisions before to get some of my own copyrighted content removed from various sites. For example, people will regularly take a PDF of my book and post it on GitHub. And so I have used DMCA quote-unquote takedown notices with, with GitHub to have those PDFs of my book removed. It's not because I'm like angry at the person who did it. It's just, I want people to pay for my book. I don't want people just to, to copy my book without paying for it. Of course, it's a futile fight because my books are highly pirated like every book is. So the DMCA didn't solve all the problems. Definitely didn't solve all the problems. And it also created all kinds of controversial situations, such as this inability to reverse engineer and even distribute that reverse engineered software mm -hmm. for breaking some of these DRMs. And it also, you know, just DRM itself is controversial because it makes our lives uncomfortable sometimes. Sometimes I buy a book and I want to send it to a friend. And, you know, if I had a paper book, I could have actually sent it in the mail to them. But because I bought a Kindle book, there's no way for me to easily give it to that friend. Now, Amazon has since made some provisions called like being able to lend a book and things like that. So yes, the companies can be kind to us and make exceptions that make things easier. But the main purpose of DRM is not to protect consumers. It's to protect content producers. It's to protect me as an author or protect the company that made Titanic or protect uh, the, the maker of some game from, from having their game pirated instead of people having to pay for it. So I think Stallman is right. It shouldn't be called digital rights management. It's digital restrictions management, unless you're using the word rights to mean the rights of the producers, not the rights of consumers and individuals. 
let's switch gears a little bit and talk about how DRM plays out in some different arenas. Uh, can we discuss video games? Yeah, and so we had that previous episode on video game distribution, which we go into this in more detail. But certainly on early consoles, there was hardware DRM in place to stop you from illegally making copies of games, to stop you from using games on third-party devices. It was very locked down at a hardware level. Most games today are distributed digitally, and there are on the consoles, there's still a lot of DRM. So whether you buy from Nintendo or Sony or Microsoft and Xbox or a Nintendo Switch, there's all kinds of DRM protecting software on the consoles. On personal computers, it varies. There are sites that distribute video games today that are totally DRM-free. One of them is GOG.com, used to be called Good Old Games. That One of their main marketing things is, hey, when you buy games from us, you don't need to log into an account on the internet every time you want to play the game. It's DRM-free. You can even copy it to your other PCs with no restrictions. However, there are other video game distribution platforms like Steam that do require you to log into your account every time you want to play a game. So it actually varies quite a bit in the video game world. Some distribution platforms are totally DRM-free and some distribution platforms are totally locked down with all of the consoles remaining locked down. And what about books? You mentioned Kindle before. Yeah, the Kindle is locked down. However, a lot of other publishers have chosen to go the DRM-free route. So every time you buy a book from the Kindle store, it only will work on Kindle devices And you can't easily copy it to a friend or um, use it on a non-Amazon device. So it's very locked down. There's even been crazy incidents in the past where Amazon has gone as far as to delete books from people who purchased the books right on their devices because it's so locked down, so controlled by Amazon. However, a lot of publishers actually sell DRM-free versions of their books directly from their websites. And there are entire ebook stores is DRM-free as well. So there are totally DRM-free bookstores. It really varies, but most people buy eBooks on the Kindle store and the Kindle store is totally locked down with DRM. What about iTunes and music? So if we go back to the 1990s, what happened with CDs is they were totally DRM-free. So anyone could go take a CD and then when MP3 technology came out and we covered this in a previous episode we did on Napster that I'll also link to in the show notes, people were suddenly just ripping CDs, distributing those MP3s on the internet And the music industry was really going crazy. So when Apple came and disrupted not only CDs, but also Napster and all of the illegal download sites with the iTunes Music Store, they originally had a lot of DRM. And they had DRM where you could had to be logged into your Apple iTunes account in order to play your music. And you could only have your music on a certain number of computers. And you could only burn it a certain number of times. There was all kinds of DRM. Over time, other music stores came about that were DRM-free. And that pressured Apple to actually go DRM-free itself, which they wanted to do originally too. It was just that to make a deal with the record producers, they had to put DRM in place to make them comfortable. So eventually Apple went DRM-free and iTunes became DRM-free. Of course, today, nobody buys songs anymore. Everyone just does streaming. And streaming, whether you do Spotify or Apple Music, is DRM protected. So of course, there's ways around it. Hackers are always finding ways around it. But when you stream a song using Apple Music or Spotify, you can't go and then take that song and send it to a friend. So even when I'm sending a playlist, it's not that I'm sending that music necessarily or that media over. Right. You're just sharing that playlist with other people to be able to access it through the same service. Mm -hmm. It's not like you could go download the song 
and then um, send it to somebody who didn't have access to the Apple Music or Spotify software, and they would then be able to play the song. How does this play out with software? When we download an app from the App Store, is that DRM protected? Yes, the app stores are all quite DRM protected. So if you think about the app store on iOS from Apple, or you think about the Google Play Store on Android, those are both DRM protected marketplaces. So you download the app and you're not able to then just, let's say, send it over to a friend's phone and they're able to install the app. It's locked to your specific account. However, that doesn't mean there's not a lot of DRM-free software distribution. Most of it happens through the web. So you buy software directly from somebody and they let you just download it from their website. But yeah, a lot of software is still distributed DRM-free from websites of software manufacturers that you download. So it really can go both ways, but the app stores are absolutely locked down. What do you think is most important for a consumer to know about DRM? So DRM was implemented originally as a way to fight piracy. DRM does not protect you as a consumer. DRM protects the producers of the content from piracy. And unfortunately, it goes so far as it sometimes makes your life inconvenient and limits what you can do with the media. So DRM is controversial for that reason. However, it's very unlikely that DRM is going away anytime soon. If you want to see less DRM, there oftentimes are alternative marketplaces that offer DRM-free products. So, for example, in the video game situation, you could buy the same game on GOG.com that you bought on Steam and get it in a DRM-free form. So if you want to see more DRM-free options, you need to vote with your wallet and buy from the DRM-free marketplaces. That said, I think for most consumers who are doing the right thing, DRM is usually not an issue. But there are some real like intellectual property rights concerns about how far laws like the DMCA go. And I think that we all need to make our own decision about this. But the way that the law stands right now, it is perfectly legal for producers to lock down their media. All right. Well, thanks for listening to us this week. Rebecca, how can people get in touch with us on Twitter? We're at Copec Explains, K-O-P-E-C-E-X-P-L-A-I-N-S. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Have a good week.